I'm Ben Horton. I'm Agnes Frimston, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Agnes, happy day before International Women's Day. Hello, thank you. <laughs> I know, where are my flowers, Ben? Um, Pending, how... it's a key word here, day before, day before. Yeah, you don't buy Go me on. flowers, I bought you fruit. Organise something, yeah, I know, that's quite amazing. Mango got, got and some nice mango watermelon. There. Oh yeah, delicious. Yeah. Delicious, okay. Not quite the cheese one, but like it's good. It's just right. virtuous. No, it's a, it's a kind of New Year thing. It's morning. Are as we well. still able to have like a New Year thing, or is it now officially the year? I just don't think you can eat cheese in the morning. Yeah. Okay. Fair. Although a lot of people on the continent would disagree with you. Thank you you went to Africa, Ben. How was I, it? I did. I did. I. It was amazing. I feel yeah. like all we do on these intros is talk about common futures. Well, yeah, but we're going not going to talk about this too much more. But yeah. So yeah, we went to Ethiopia, and Ethiopia was wicked. Definitely would recommend going there. It was such an amazing country. Mm. Um, was it really beautiful? Really beautiful. Yeah. Really beautiful. And so much history. And They've got the salt, sort of, not mines, but like the salt tops in Ethiopia, just outside Addis, apparently. Oh, like right, the most okay. amazingly coloured. I did not go there, but okay. yeah, I've heard that that is good. Yeah. yeah. And um, there's a lot of trekking to be done in the mountains. Yeah. Which apparently is pretty awesome as well. So it was, um, but it was such a good trip and uh, the workshop was, was really, really interesting. Good. Trying to come up with new ideas for a digital platform, connecting young people in Africa and Europe. Excellent. We like that. Um, well, my last plug, as when this comes out, we will have one day before the end of the World's Day and the FT joint article competition. Mind blown, I know. What? So what it's day? 500 words. If you're 16 to 19 or know anybody who is and you want to write on what you would do if you were UN Secretary General for the day, submit it. The prize is great. You get to come to London, where you get put up in the hotel where the Spice Girls video Wannabe was filmed. What? Um, and you get to come to the London conference, and it gets presented to you by the editor of the FT, and you get to meet some Chatham houses. Mm. And it, it's, it's cracking. So tell us what you want, what you really, really want. <laughs> oh, Ben. There we go. <laughs> Had to be done. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to do as UN Secretary General for a day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> As as the song famously <laughs> continues, um, you can tell Ben has a marketing background. So everyone get their <laughs> so everyone get their uh, responses in. Yep, please do. Wicked, We've already had lots actually, which are really great. Wow. Um, and it's we're going to pick one winner, but then we also are going to f- highlight five people whose ideas were really great. Mm-hmm. So even if you feel like your writing isn't incredibly strong, if you've got a great point to make, send it to me. And uh, you've had a bit of a. A, a trying time, I think it'd be fair to say, in the last <laughs> week or so. Anyone that's familiar with Agnes's Twitter feed may already know this, but for those of you who aren't, what what exactly happened this weekend? Well, I went to Dublin. You went to Dublin? Which is so lovely. So that's kind of scary in itself, right? Yeah, lovely. <laughs> supposed to go on Friday, but I was poorly, so I went on Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. And then we had a 5.30 flight back from Dublin on Sunday. 5.30 um, in the evening? 5.30 in the afternoon, I would say. Yeah. Afternoon, yeah. And then Freya hit. Storm Freya. Never met a Freya I liked. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, it snowed a bit and there was only one de-icer in Dublin. So I spent five hours on a plane on the runway. Oh my goodness. Yeah, the plane next to us didn't have any loos working for five hours. Oh my goodness. But that was not the case with yours. No, but no free water or anything. No free water? No, we had to pay for everything. So yeah, got off at 11 and then luckily found a hotel and flights the next day. But people were sleeping in the airport. It was so grim. It was so grim. Gosh. So we spent a fortune 
on new flights. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, one and of my friends. And your body weight in champagne by the looks of it from your. Carver. Carver. No, Prosecco. No, we had what? I mean, we just, we just hit a wall. <laughs> we hit a wall, I would say. <laughs> my friend hasn't drunk since December and Ryanair broke her. Straight through that. <laughs> Dublin's such a weird city, isn't it? Okay. <laughs> but it's nothing's very high. They don't mm. have any tall buildings. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I find that a bit with Washington, D.C. Yeah, and it creates such a... And because it's not hilly, it's very flat. Yeah. So you can't ever really sort of see where you are. So it sort of sprawls. Yeah, but, but without any sort of, I don't know... Landmarks. Yeah, yeah. anything to look up to. Yeah. Anyone that's been triangulating Yeah. on a DOV trip or something... <laughs> You know, you know, it's a difficult place to oh, do it. Oh, DV. What All what DV did you get to? Oh, I only did bronze. Did you finish bronze? No. No, me too. High five. Excellent. Did all of it, then just didn't get the paperwork in. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, anyway, but I'm not bitter. Anyway, we should probably get on with the pod. Uh, so, actually, we've got just the one interview this week. We do. Kind of to mark International Women's Day, mm-hmm. which is happening this week. And uh, we thought it would be interesting to have a think about the history of Chatham House and what role women played in the founding of the Institute. And fortunately for us, <laughs> there is actually a historian who works on these things, on these very <laughs> things. Um, Katerina Rietzler, who is at the University of Sussex. Mm-hmm. And she's working on a research project called Women and the History of International Thought. And she's been sort of digging through the Chatham House archives to look at who was involved in the founding of the Institute. So we just sat down for a chat. Mm-hmm. And um, sadly, as you mentioned, you were poorly. I was poorly, so it's Ben. Very sad. So uh, way to lean in, Agnes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah good stuff. So for International Women's Day, we have an interview done by a man. A bloke. A man, yeah, no. which is exactly what we uh, well, I have to take full responsibility for that. Okay, cool. I'm glad that that was uh, <laughs> put on the record there. And now on with the pod. Let's have a listen. Okay, so now I'm joined by Katerina Rietzler, who is a lecturer in American history at the University of Sussex. And she's also one of the lead researchers in a new Leverhulme Trust funded project on women and the history of international thought. As part of this project, Katerina has been digging through the Chatham House archive to discover the role of women in the founding and early running of the organisation. And she's here to tell us a bit more about that. Um, Katerina, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Um, Could we just start by talking a little bit about the founding of Chatham House generally? Where did the organisation come from? Well, the organisation really emerges in the context of World War I, but it's important to recognise that even before World War I, there is a group of British statesmen, British intellectuals, who are concerned with the problem of order, and um, specifically in relation to the British Empire, but also when it comes to relations between nations and states. So in the aftermath of World War I, which sees a kind of massive reordering of the world at the Paris Peace Conference, a group group of um, British, as I've said, uh, intellectuals and statesmen get together and what they really want to do is to continue those discussions that they've had in the context of that um, Versailles Peace Conference. So Chatham House as an institution crystallises in about 1920, 1921. 
that's when um, the decision is made to, to formalize these conversations, to come up with an institutional structure. Um, and some key players in that endeavor were, as is well known, um, Lionel Curtis, but also uh, Robert Cecil. And um, so what happens is then in 1920, um, the organization is set up. Um, and uh, in 1921, um, it is joined by Margaret Cleave, who is one of the first uh, members of staff of Chatham House. And, and she's also um, a woman, obviously. Um, so Cleave is really there from the very beginning. And I see her as part of that founding generation that consists of people like Curtis, um, Cecil, but also Arnold Toynbee. Um, and uh, she remains there until the mid-1950s. Mm. Thanks very much. That's really interesting. And um, what was her role at Chatham House in that early time? Well, so initially she joins um, as a secretary. It's very much a secretarial role, but uh, she takes on more and more responsibility. And then in 1929, she takes over the library and publications department. But then, more importantly, she also takes over the running of international affairs. And that is really the public face of Chatham House. That's the flagship journal. And her role becomes even more important in the course of World War II, when a lot of the Chatham House men are drawn into government work and um, she becomes the acting director. So uh, this is the official side of things. These are her official roles. But well before that, um, Cleve is one of the key intellectual players. She's very, very good, for example, at running the scholarly intellectual connections between Chatham House and other organizations abroad, such as the League of Nations Institute for Intellectual Cooperation or um, indeed the Rockefeller Foundation, the Council on Foreign Relations. Cleve is always part of the conversation and um, essentially she also takes over a lot of the the work that um, Arnold Toynbee is supposed to do and this relates to things that I would maybe call today research administration so mm -hmm. deciding who works on what project um, how the logistics are arranged etc this this is important work I mean she never actually publishes anything but she's certainly involved in the intellectual production of what then emerges as international relations as a field, as a subject of study. So she shapes the field, she shapes the discipline, but it's very hard to see her um, when we just, if we just look at um, books, articles, she's not really there. But she is very clear about what she regards as good scholarship and not so good scholarship. So that's why she's important. Yeah, I was going to say, despite her not publishing anything, do we have a sense of the sort of... Um, well, sort of her kind of her philosophical approach or her intellectual like take on, on international relations and these things. Is that something that exists? Well, I think it does exist in the sense that, as I've said, she's concerned with library and publications. And that, mean, that may seem incredibly dull, right? Oh, the librarian. But um, at that point in time, that was actually a key function of these institutes of international affairs because the problem was really about getting information that was reliable, that was kind of the raw material of what scholars would then try to do. And, and Cleve had certain standards of, of accuracy. Um, she was also very interested in how information was classified, how it was ordered, how it was made retrievable. And this is obviously the age before any kind of databases or right. the internet yeah. even. Um, so all you had were things like press clippings. 
Um, so um, the press cuttings department emerges in the mid-1920s, or actually I think it, it's in 1924. And what this means is that you have a bunch of uh, women, essentially, because that was a, a female sort of sphere within Chatham House, reading foreign newspapers in all sorts of languages and sometimes very obscure publications, and just reading newspapers and then producing clippings that would then be sorted and these form the raw material for people like Arnold Toynbee who then produces his surveys of international affairs. So if we can talk about Cleve's intellectual outlook, I think she's important as a thinker of how um, about how information becomes international relations research. So that, that, that kind of relationship between information and um, intellectual production. Without people like Cleve, you wouldn't have these um, standard works, um, these surveys for international affairs, because and and they they are one of the key you know products of Chatham House. That's what they sell, and that's what makes their reputation. So obviously, um, from its inception, Chatham House has been a membership organization. Mm-hmm. How far were women accepted as members at Chatham House? Do we have a sense? Were they were they always allowed? Were they banned? We, we know for sure that women were very much in the minority as members in that time period that we're that we're looking at um, here. And the council, sorry, the um, so Chatham House does um, admit them. Um, there is a sense in the archives that that happens with some reluctance. Really, um, but um, that that. That is what I'm getting, at least from some American commentators who who say that um, Chatham House admitted women and then regretted it. But but uh, I I think you know that that may just be a biased source. But um, so what we can say is that women members. So when we look at um, council members, are very much in the minority. Um, Indrajit Palmer has done some work that suggests that um, between 1920 and 1950, out of 103. Um, uh, president and council members, uh, there were only six women. Um, however, I think that's one way of looking at it. Membership doesn't tell you everything about an organisation. It would make sense that women are in the minority given their status in British society. I mean, membership it costs money, etc. But um, women are represented in other ways, as I've suggested. They are um, very much represented on Chatham House staff. Um, they are also represented um, as speakers. Um, so you have quite a few women, especially in the 1940s, who are Chatham House speakers, who uh, who give talks and who are invited and welcomed. So it's too easy to say that Chatham House wasn't a welcoming organisation to women. Yeah, let's dig into a bit about um, the speakers, uh, the female speakers who who came to Chatham House to speak um, in those early years. Um, who, what sort of backgrounds are they coming from? What what sort of professions are they are they working in? I mean, one thing that has to be recognised, and maybe maybe it goes without saying, but but obviously Chatham House is an elite institution. So. Even though um, I was actually quite surprised looking at some of the speakers, men and women, at um, the breadth of political persuasions uh, that were represented. But when it comes to women speakers, very often they are um, elite women. Um, So women who are highly educated, 
upper middle class, etc. And you have in the 1930s and also the 1920s, you have some very interesting speakers, prominent women such as Eleanor Rathbone, a very famous Labour MP who really shaped British social policy, um, but also uh, Rachel Crowdy from the League of Nations, the only woman head of the uh, or head of section at the League of Nations. She speaks to Chatham House in 1927. But then in the 1940s, you have a very strong influx of women um, and they fall into, roughly speaking, two groups. So you have some important women scholars um, who are academics, um, who who write about international relations. One of them is Barbara Wooten. She's an economist. She's very much interested in federalism as a new way of um, shaping the post-war order. You have people like Barbara Ward. Um, she's interested in spirituality, Christianity um, and international relations. And um, another woman of interest is Elizabeth Monroe. She later becomes a fellow um, a fellow of St. Anthony's College at Oxford. Um, she's an important figure when it comes to founding uh, research into the, the Middle East in Britain. Um, so you have these women scholars, but you also have more colourful figures, you could say. So um, you have women explorers that sort of conform to the stereotype of the aristocratic British woman who travels abroad and, and comes home to tell to tell of her adventures. Um, so you get people, you get women like uh, Isabel Hutchinson, um, an Arctic explorer, Rosita Forbes, she was a travel writer, um, Freya Stark, um, she's another explorer. She's interested in, again, in the Middle East. Um, and um, these are women whose expertise is really founded in their life experience. As I've said, they are of a certain class, they conform to a certain type, but their voice is sought at Chatham House and I I was quite surprised by that I didn't expect that yeah what strikes me from that is that that description of a, a lot of these women as um, deriving their kind of expertise through informal kind of channels in some ways does that reflect the fact that British academia at that time was very hard to get into as if you were a woman Obviously, um, there are barriers. I, I think that that goes without saying. Um, I mean, this is a time when women can't yet get uh, degrees. Um, women, there are formal barriers um, in in some in some elements um, in some parts of British higher education. There are there are formal barriers to to women. Um, that that's. That's just a fact. And we are talking obviously about the nineteen twenties. 30s, 40s. That said, I would say that Chatham House provided for some scholarly women, women who were kind of on on the edge of academia, women who really struggled to get a permanent position. They offered a kind of space where they could find paid employment, which was really important and hard to get because they would do contract research for Chatham House. And that kind of kept them in the loop, that that enabled them to do scholarly work. So Chatham House, for some women, made up for some of these structural discriminations, whether they were of a formal nature or whether they were grounded in, say, old boys' networks, etc., um, sort of homosocial uh, ways of excluding women. Um, an example here is Elizabeth Whiskman. Um, she was a specialist on Central Europe. She she wrote um, some very well-regarded books on um, the conflict, for example, between Czechs and Germans. And for her, Chatham House was a bit of a lifeline. And um, Elizabeth Monroe is another example. Um, it's her 
position at Chatham House that gets her a Rockefeller Foundation fellowship. And that's incredibly generous for the time. You know, that's a grant that anybody would dream of. Unlimited research funding. She gets lots of extensions from the foundation. She can really, really dig into her research all around the Mediterranean. It's fantastic. And she gets that opportunity because she is at Chatham House. Obviously, she's also an Oxbridge graduate. She's an elite woman. You know, this can only go so far. But for her, this is a real opportunity. Chatham House was founded at the same time as the uh, Council on Foreign Relations in the US. I believe founded with similar um, similar vision and a similar motivation. Is that something that was the same? Is, is what we've been talking about, was that a similar situation across the pond? Well, um, first of all, I think that it, it might make sense to call the council a, a brother think tank right. because um, <laughs> it, it was very much um, and very self-consciously a very masculine institution. Um, Chatham House was for its time quite enlightened, but the council really was not. Um, there is a sense that you get from the council archives, and this has also been borne out in the scholarship, that women were very much seen as a disturbance in the serious business of ruling the world, to put it quite bluntly. The council does not admit women until 1969. When it does, there's a lot of resistance. Um, The council um, knows about this different attitude um, that it has um, compared to Chatham House. It it comes up in conversations with, for example, important funders. Um, But nonetheless, those two institutions have a a common history. The founding generation of Chatham House talks to the founding generation of the Council on Foreign Relations in the context of the peacemaking after World War I. So they share a history. They exchange expertise um, also in the area of librarianship, etc. And the council in the 1930s is actually behind Chatham House when it comes to setting up really um, structured processes for information gathering. Um, They only set up their library in 1930, uh, so quite some time after Chatham House. Um, And they are more of a talking shop, I I think it would be fair to say. Um, So so there are important differences, especially when it comes to women. Um, And from what I've seen in my research, uh, the first speaker who gets the full Council on Foreign Relations treatment at the council is actually uh, Vijaya Lakshmi Pandit, um, who is uh, a very important figure in um, in Indian history. She is the sister of Nehru. She's at that time um, the ambassador of India to the United States. So she is invited in, in 1952, but she's the first woman speaker who gets a proper dinner. Um, 1952. In 1952, yes. I would like to go back to thinking about the specific roles that um, female staff at Chatham House were were um, carrying out in these early years alongside Margaret Cleave. Do you have any sense from your archive research about the perception of these roles? I, I, what I mean by that is there's a tendency maybe to look back with a 21st century um, perspective and see working in the cuttings department or in the kind of administrative task as, as, as almost one-dimensional, quite limiting roles. But do you think that was born out in those times? Do you think that that's sort of women in their place doing women's work or was it seen as a more fulfilling occupation? That's a difficult question 
to answer, I I think a couple of things here. First of all, it is important to understand the importance of that work at the time. Uh, it's easy to look back on this and think, oh, it's a it's a bunch of women sort of messing around <laughs> with scissors um, right. and newspapers. But yeah. but this work was really essential, and I think that was acknowledged to a certain extent. It was at least acknowledged internally. Externally is maybe a different matter. So as I've already mentioned, the press cuttings department is really important for the surveys of international affairs under the um, authorship of Arnold Toynbee. And obviously Toynbee has a co-author, Veronica Bolter, and it takes a long time until she is uh, formally acknowledged, until her name is printed also on on the survey. So um, when it comes to that formal acknowledgement, I I do think... um, as in so many areas, women's work doesn't get that um, acknowledgement. That said, I think at least internally, it was acknowledged. Maybe Chatham House staff have heard of Margaret Cleave mm-hmm. and some of these other women that you've spoken about um, today. But I think it would be fair to say that in terms of the official story, maybe of, of Chatham House and of institutions like these, they're not really... Uh, they haven't in the past been properly acknowledged. Um, why is it, thinking, I don't know, maybe more generally about history writing, like why over time has this impact kind of been forgotten or overlooked? It was, but of course um, many others who were, many of the men who were associated with Chatham House are also really important figures, right? It's, uh, it, it is probably tempting to focus on somebody like Lord Lothian um, instead of Margaret Cleave, because um, quite a lot of Chatham House men move in the circles of high politics and diplomacy. These these are important figures, and it's not surprising that they would be foregrounded. Um, and then there's a problem with writing women's history generally, because you know there are these structures that I've mentioned. Um, a, a woman cannot be a peer of the realm, <laughs> so. Um, if I'm informed correctly. So um, there are these structures. And um, if we just look for women who fit into um, patterns that are dom- sort of that are made essentially for, for men, then we won't find them. We will find exceptional women. But unless we ask, well, what is that thing called international relations? What does that actually consist of? How is this knowledge produced? Uh, unless we ask those questions, then we won't... Um, find those women, even if they are there. And obviously they are not there in some institutions. There's there's no doubt about that. And um, yeah, but it's it's a problem that women's historians face in general. It's the temptation to look at exceptional women, trying to get away from that and look at what actually was women's work and um, and look at that in history. Really interesting and I think a great place to end. Just before we do, though, where can people find out more about this sort of work? We have got um, more information about the project on our project website, uh, which is um, very easy to find if you just search for women and the history of international thought at Sussex. Um, There are regular blog posts and um, there's a broader outline of the project as well. So we, we look at um, academic women, but also think tank women and women in other th- other fields, Bro- broadly um, considered 
um, as thinking about international relations. Katarina Rietzler, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. It was great to be here. That was really interesting. Like, well done, Ben. Well oh. done. Leaning in. Thanks so much. Because also, I think Chatham House, you know, obviously can come across and does come across as very, very male. Mm. Okay. So hearing, like, about what women got up to. Yeah, and actually how, I mean, this is not to be like an apologist for the Institute or anything, but actually how, um, for the standards of the time, we're actually not as bad as, as yeah. many people expect. Like, yeah. you know, it's a... Yeah, it's an interesting one. It's a kind of, yeah, okay, we have this brand as a sort of establishment kind of institute, but women were very much involved from the like press clippings department, but also through to who was actually allowed to speak. Yeah. And there's never been a kind of ban on women as speakers at Chatham House. Well, also, I thought, since I wasn't part of that because I was poorly, that I might come up with some books. Oh, a little recommendation session. A little recommendation sesh. session for yes. books either about... Let, I was going to say the ladies. About Don't the ladies. joke about this. Either books about women or written by women. Nice, nice. So obviously last year some great things came out. Mary Beard's Women on Power, mm-hmm. phenomenal, short mm-hmm. one. Um, Helena Kennedy, Eve Was Shamed, um, a follow-up to Eve Was Framed. And what's that about? Which is about how the law fails women. Um, you can read my review of it online. Yeah, and basically the gaps in the law, you know, how if you're raped on a Tinder date you're not going to get a conviction. And what things can be changed around that sort of stuff. Yeah. Uh, we had a great interview, didn't we, with the author of Rage Becomes Her? Soraya Chamali. Exactly. Um, uh, that was a great book. Also, some some things coming up you probably read. Did you read the extract from Caroline Criado Perez's book in The Guardian? Oh, my goodness, yes. Weekend, yep. That's so caused a bit of a stir, hasn't it? It has, but that's three years' worth of work from her. So, Invisible Women is coming out soon. I and think that's about? Month. It's about data gaps, basically. And how, um, yeah, how women are not being taken into account when um, things are being analysed. So things like um, police stab vests aren't designed for women. So women are more like, women police officers are more likely to get injured. When you're testing cars for car crash, um, the effects of a crash, there is only one female dummy, which is a scaled down version of a man. And it's only used in the passenger seat, never used in the driver's seat. It's the mum. The mum, right. yeah. So women are right. far less likely to get into crashes, but far more likely to be injured in crashes if they occur. Um, the highest cause of um, like fetal death is at car crashes, but there still aren't seatbelts that fully fit pregnant women. Things like that. Basically. Cheery. Cheery stuff, but really interesting. Mm. And, it's, and it's been well received by the male population, would it that be fair to say? has, hasn't it? <laughs> well, I'm really tall. I'm not average. <laughs> right. Thank you, chum. Um, what else? Some fiction. Some great fiction has come out this year by women. Mm-hmm. Normal People, Sally Rooney. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, Pat Barker, The Silence of the Girls. All about the Trojan War but written from Briseis's perspective. It's caused a ripple on the fourth floor of Chatham House. Shout out to Mike, who has had a revelation from reading it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and there are some really great things coming up. Marie LeConte's book on Westminster Gossip will be out at the end of this year, which I'm excited about. Um, and, yeah, lots of women doing lots of exciting things. Cool, um, and also, just to continue the plug, we actually have 
uh, coming out on Friday on International Wednesday itself, we have uh, a special blog post from International Affairs from the Book Reviews editor, cool. who has also done her top 10 books um, that have been published in the last year by um, female IR academics. Amazing. Um, work, works on women and works by women, as you as you said. So so we'll, we'll tweet the link to that too. Cool. But yeah, uh, awesome. That sounds really good. And just finally, I mean, I heard that actually our last episode caused some controversy um, to do with the shout outs that may or may not have been given out. Um, Did it? In the conclusion. <laughs> it didn't cause any controversy, but I feel bad. You feel bad? I feel bad. It hasn't been raised actually, which potentially implies somebody hasn't got to the end. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I should probably give a shout Maybe out you to, should explain. to John Elledge for being a general legend. Yeah, good. Is that fair, Ben? Lovely. Yeah, yeah. Okay, anyway, cool. on that note, <laughs> we're going to be back in a couple of weeks. We will be. Well, see, we've slightly interrupted our schedule in giving you two back to back episodes. But I'm going on weeks. holiday next week. This is not happening anymore. So, <laughs> so you're going to have to wait for two weeks <laughs> when we'll have some very exciting interviews. And in the meantime, I'm Ben Horton. I'm Agnes Frimston, and you've been listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House.